Good morning. Pardon our little discussions here. We're still working some uh, some things out, but I think we're getting better at it. I think week by week, trying to get the new system in. I want to keep mentioning to you the uh, the. Uh, trip to Israel in uh, March of uh, 2017. That's a year away, and um, we want to give you as much time as necessary if, if the Lord's put on your heart to go or if you've been interested in going. Uh, we encourage you to uh, uh, certainly pray about it, and, and uh, more information is, is on its way. Uh, the dates are March the 8th through the 18th. It's uh, March 8th is a Wednesday. We come back on a Saturday, the 18th. And uh, that, uh, I just want to give you those dates because I want to make sure that you all have um, uh, an, uh, an opportunity, you know, to set those into your calendars. If you're really interested in going, then whatever you have to work out as far as your schedules are concerned, you can do it. Um, uh, you have a whole year, almost a whole year, less than a year now, but uh, you have a year to, to get ready. John, John chapter 7, uh, it's kind of a long uh, uh, title, a question of identification, a quandary of ignorance. For those who may not uh, know the word quandary, it is simply a dilemma, a predicament. And you'll see it when we get to it in, in the text. But John chapter 7, we find Jesus now in Jerusalem again. For the feast of the tab the feast of tabernacles, and he's in the temple and he's preaching. And of course, when he preaches, he always preaches with authority. He always preaches, commanding. <coughs> excuse me, commanding the room, commanding what's happening, because he is, of course, not only the Son of God, but he is God the Son. He is the Mashiach, the Messiah of Israel. And for the last few chapters, we have seen a growing discontent with Jesus, a growing discontent because of what he teaches about himself. But that's what he came to do. He came to show who he was. And he has a time frame. And no matter how many times people wanted to take him and kill him for the things that he said and the things that he even did. Healing a man on the Sabbath day, which is certainly a part of our understanding of this chapter. Nonetheless, he couldn't be touched because his hour was not yet come. So we pick up in verse 25 of John chapter 7. And we find that there are two groups of people. I didn't mention this last time, so I'll mention it today because of this other group of people. But in verse uh, 25, it says, Then some said of them of Jerusalem. Then said some of them of Jerusalem. In other words, there are the locals from Jerusalem, which now let us know that the ones that were hearing Jesus and responding to Jesus in the previous verses were actually from out of town. And we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But then says some of them of Jerusalem, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is, which means, howbeit that we know this man and where he's from. But when Christ, or the Messiah, cometh, no man knoweth whence he cometh, whence he is. In other words, where he, where he comes from, nobody knows. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom you know not. He says, you don't know God. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. I 
And then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Apostle John wanted us to focus on the impact of Jesus' miracles. Not just the fact of the miracles. He wanted us to focus on the impact that is the apostle who wrote this gospel. Certainly he mentions the miracles and the miracles are, are quite significant in, in, in the way that John presents them. Because though we know that Jesus did so many miracles, he really focuses on just a few. But on those that he focuses, he wants us to see the impact of those particular miracles. For example, at the end of chapter 2, we're told this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. In other words, they were believing because they saw. But remember what, he, what goes on to say, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So it does mention that there, there, were, there were miracles that he did. So then we see in chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night as a result of that. And he says to Jesus, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And what follows in, cha in chapter 3 is this great discourse of Jesus on being born again. And then the lengthy message and the dialogue in John chapter 6. Remember how many weeks we spent in John chapter 6. This lengthy dialogue in John chapter 6 was based on the feeding of the 5,000 men and their families. And then here in chapter 7, all he deals with in John 7 really is based on the miracle of John chapter 5 where Jesus healed the lame man and where he also explained his deity in different ways. So from performing miracles to focusing on the, on the impact of the miracles, and yet most don't believe. This is what we see throughout the Gospels, if not here in the Gospel of John. He does these things, yet most do not believe. Many of the people, certainly most of the religious leaders didn't believe, and even some members of his own family, as we saw early on in this chapter. And what we see in this is that most don't want to believe. Even though they see clearly what he's done, they don't want to believe. And this is what we'll see in our study this morning. This scene is set during the Feast of the Tabernacles in Jerusalem, and Jesus arrives midweek, as it tells us at the beginning of the chapter, and he walks into the temple and he begins to teach, and everything changes. Well, it just seems like every time we see Jesus in some part of the gospel, whenever he speaks, things change. And we have to understand what those changes are, why the changes take place, how the changes affect us. But those who hear him, they're marveling at what and how he teaches. They were saying, where, where does, how did this man learn letters? He certainly didn't learn the scriptures from us. None of us know him from any of our seminaries down here in Jerusalem. Where did he get this? Because he spoke with such authority and with such power. But it was what Jesus said that bothered them. It is what Jesus said that bothered them, recognizing who he is. The miracle worker, they saw him. Isn't this the miracle worker? The, the people can't say anything about the miracles. They can't find any fault in the miracles. They can't pretend that they didn't happen. They couldn't say that, the lame, that lame men weren't walking because they saw one that they knew was lame and he was walking. They couldn't say that blind men weren't seeing because 
when Jesus would heal their eyes, they would see. But what did they do? They attacked the man. Remember in verse 20, what they said of Jesus, thou hast the devil. Thou hast the devil. And then they attack his character by saying, who goeth about to kill thee? Who, who really is going around killing you? Now you'll understand why they ask that question in just a moment. But it all seems to come back to unbelief. Because what do we find as Jesus preaches to his own people, the Jews? Because they're his people. They're his chosen people. But what is it that they say time and again? Show us a sign. Show us a sign and we'll believe. Even his own brothers mocked him and told him if he was who he claimed to be. Go to Jerusalem, they told him, and, and show yourself to the world. But the question of importance today is this question, the question of identification. This is the question that we're going to deal with today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? If you go back to verse 25 of the text, it says, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. In other words, they're saying, listen, isn't this the one they want to kill? Now, the ones that are saying this now are the ones that seem to know that this is what the religious leaders wanted to do. Therefore, their being of Jerusalem, they were around during the time of the healing of the lame man. So John is making a, a, a specific mention of these people. Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? And then in verse 27 it says, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. And again, I want you to take note that those who spoke were of Jerusalem in contrast to the general populace who had heard Jesus in the temple. Remember, there is a feast. And in the feast, people came from all around. They weren't all just from Jerusalem. They came from the Galilee region. They came from other areas and other lands, some as far as Egypt and other places. And they would come at, all, at the three most important feasts of Israel, and they would come to Jerusalem. So most of them were outside of Judea or from outside of Judea and had come for the feast. And they weren't aware of the underlying issues taking place. The Jewish religious leaders wanting Jesus dead, that was the issue. This is the reason why in verse 20, again, they say, you know, you have a devil. I mean, who is going around wanting to kill you? They, they weren't aware. Therefore, those saying that were the ones who were from outside of Judea, who didn't realize that Jesus had healed a, a layman on the Sabbath day, which was the contention, you see. The many in the temple were probably not there when the, when the miracle took place, and, and they weren't aware of the fallout of the miracle. What was the fallout of the miracle? All you have to do is go back to John chapter 5 verse 16 and read, therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he did or he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But when you get back over to John chapter 7 verse 19, what we find there is that Jesus had exposed the hypocrisy of the Jews and this is the reason why they said he had a devil. Look at verse 19. He said, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keepeth the law? It's kind of interesting how Jesus tells them that because everyone, I mean, knows that Jesus is really saying this to some extent facetiously because you know what he's saying? He says, you're the ones that say that Moses gave you the law. So, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why do you go about to kill me? So here we have two groups of the same people, but do they really know who Jesus is? And that's the question. And the question is for us to also answer, who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he a devil, as some people were calling him back then? Is he a devil? Did he do what he did by the power of Beelzebub? 
So quickly did they hurl insults at Jesus and call him vile names. You think in the other Gospels, Mark chapter 3, verse 22, for instance. Oh, I, can just, I just saw that it changes up here quicker than on my pad here. So now, now I, have, I have more understanding. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub and the prince, uh, and by the prince of the devils cast to see out devils. And we all know what Jesus says. Hey, Satan does not cast out Satan. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And the same goes for Luke chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. In other words, it, it couldn't speak. It was, a, it was a, a demon that caused people not to speak. He was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But notice in verse 15, but some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub the chief of the devils. But Jesus is in your mind. You see, for them, you know, Jesus was, was the devil. Jesus was working under Beelzebub. But may I say to you that what Jesus is in a person's mind doesn't change who he is. It does not change who Jesus is. But it does make a difference where you'll be in God's eternity. It will make a difference where a person will be in God's eternity. I want you to listen. If you think wrong of Jesus Christ, you think wrong of God. And if you think wrong of God, you are lost. May I say that again? If you think wrong of Jesus Christ, you think wrong of God. And if you think wrong of God, you are lost. We get back to the temple. We get back to those of Jerusalem in verse 25. As I said, these were the locals who would have been around at the time of the events of chapter 5. Another feast, by the way. They were saying, is not this he? They're listening, they're seeing Jesus, and they're saying, is this not he whom they seek to kill? Isn't this the one that they want to take and kill? They knew of the spreading of the rumor. Hey, they're, they're trying to get this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and they want him dead. So now we find that they're commencing an investigation. They're becoming detectives. You know, detectives have to ask a lot of questions in investigating some kind of a crime, some kind of a situation. So they're starting to ask a lot of questions. Isn't this the one? I mean, they knew that their leaders and their ambitions and their desires, and they knew what the, the ambitions and the desires of the leaders was, or were. And, and, and John was careful to identify this small group of locals that, that knew what was going on. But there was indeed some confusion there was confusion among them. Verse 26, but lo, he speaketh boldly, they said. They said, isn't he the one? But then, but, and he's speaking so boldly. And they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man whence he is. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. In other words, no one knows where he's coming from. So now, by all of this questioning, they're, they're not only reasoning among themselves, they question and they answer themselves. Be careful when somebody does that. You know, it's one thing about, you know, talking to yourself when you answer yourself. Really, that's dangerous. But now, altogether, they're doing this. They're just, they're, 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 they're asking these questions, and they're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Question number one, is this not he? Some were sure that it was. There were some that were not at all convinced that it's him. And others were just not sure. And so they went back and forth as the, as the text suggests. Well, if this is he, why don't they get him? 
He's not just out in the wilderness. He's not in the countryside of, 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 of Nazareth, or I should say of, of uh, the Galilee. He's not, you know, he's not out there you know, in, in open areas. He's right here. He's in the territory of the religious leaders. He's in the temple. This is their turf. This is their barrio. This was the perfect opportunity. Why aren't they taking it? It makes no sense. It can't be him then. You see, well, or did they change their mind? Because consider the question, do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? What are they getting at here? Interestingly, this is the first confession of its type in John's gospel. Is it possible? Have the leaders changed their minds? Is this the Messiah? If so, it's definitely the Messiah. And they want to kill him? He's in the temple and they're not touching him? Maybe they changed their minds. Maybe this is the Messiah. He certainly spoke with such authority. He spoke with such command. He commanded the attention of the entire temple. But who is he? Who is he? But they started to reason their way out of it. You see, when you see all these questions, you see that they're starting to reason their way out of it. Like those who get to a place today, those who get to a place in their lives that they realize that they need to get right with God. They're afraid of dying. They know Jesus is who he claims to be. They become convinced of everything the scriptures declare. They're, they're even sensitive to it. Some will even shed tears. And they're so close. And they ponder, is this Jesus, the Son of God, the only Savior of sinners? They are halting between two opinions, as Elijah said to the people when he faced the prophets of Baal. Why do you halt between two opinions? If Baal is God, then go worship him. But if the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God, you worship him. And people today are halting between two opinions. And how sad that so many come to that point standing there wavering. And then you talk to them afterwards. And if it's as if it never happened at all. There's a word for that in English. It's the word ambivalence. Ambivalence is an uncertainty as to which course to follow. I hope you know the way to follow. I, I hope you know that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no man cometh unto the Father except by me. We're not to be ambivalent. We are to be sure. And we can be sure because of the word of God. And may I say to you simply, if God speaks, respond. If God speaks, respond. How often did God speak to the children of Israel? How often did he speak through his prophets? How often did he speak through the patriarchs? And yet the people still disobeyed. And they still rebelled. We're reminded of Romans 10, verse 17, where Paul says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. If God speaks, respond in faith. Respond with trust and dependency upon the God who speaks, who is perfect, who is righteous, who is true. And so getting back to these people, the people were, were trying to reason their way out of what they were beginning to believe. Is this Messiah? 
Who is he? You notice in verse 27, Howbeit we know this man whence he is, in other words, where he comes from. But when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. In effect, they're saying, wait a minute. Wait just one minute. We know this man. This is Jesus of Nazareth. This is the son of the carpenter. This is the son of Mary. We know him. It can't be Messiah because we know where he's from. We've known him for a considerable amount of time. We know where he's from. We know his family. And he's from Nazareth. Oh, can anything good come from Nazareth? This is now the beginning of the quandary of ignorance. The dilemma of ignorance. In that they should have known. But you see, the Jewish people had a concept of how Messiah would arrive. And how he would arrive suddenly at the temple and judge the nations. This is how they were looking for Messiah. It comes from a passage in Micah chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is. And let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. He's going to appear at the temple. And then it says in verse 3, For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And it goes on and talks about him coming to judge. And the impact would be felt by his presence. He would be unknown. Listen, he would be unknown. And again, I'm talking about this concept. He would be unknown until he appeared to deliver Israel and change Israel overnight. But here's a problem. They should have known where his birthplace was. From that very same prophecy of Micah. They should have known his birthplace. Micah 5 verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That is what they should have known. So here these people are looking at Jesus and, and, and they're saying, you know, something's just not fitting here. He has authority when he speaks. He, 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 he's, he's healed people. But things just don't seem to fit. You know what the problem was? They weren't trying to make things fit. They could, they could have and they should have checked the records. They might have as well just checked the Word of God. They should have just checked the Scriptures. But they had records, and they could have checked the records and the genealogy because they had those records at the temple until 70 A.D. And we know what happened then when the Romans destroyed the temple. The point is, Jesus does fit. Jesus does fit the character and the identification and the person of Messiah. But like the investigators of Christianity today, oh, and there are just a whole bunch of them. You see them on, on, on the internet all the time, you know, spouting out all of their heresies based on other things other than the Word of God and everything, everything else that can substantiate. The Word of God alone substantiates the presence of Jesus. But you got these investigators of Christianity today who watch the Da Vinci Code. Or they search Google. In Google, we trust. Don't go that far yet. 
And because they've seen the Da Vinci Code and they search Google, they're now experts in the person and work of Jesus Christ. How sick is this? How sick is this? Folks, this is not serious inquiry. This is not serious inquiry, but, but with the Jews, uh, Jewish people of Jesus' time, there should have been serious inquiry. Because if you get this wrong, folks, if you get this wrong, who Jesus is, you will pay forever. You do know that you don't save your soul through Google searches, right? Especially if you're listening or reading something leading you away from the truth. You know, Jesus warned about that in, in Matthew 24. He said, do not be deceived when you hear people saying, there is the Messiah, there goes Messiah, he's in the wilderness. He says, don't be deceived. Well, the people in Jesus' own time were going through that. But even today, there, there's a man claiming to be God. There's a man claiming to be God. Let's search Google. And they come up to this title. Did God, did, I'm sorry, did Jesus really live? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> Idiots! Some idiot comes along and disregards historical records, both biblical and extra-biblical. Not all extra-biblical books are bad. Some, some are historical, and so, you know, they give us some indication of, of things, like the, you know, the, the book of the Maccabees, you know, a great historical record of, of the intertestamental time before Jesus came. But as for the Jewish locals in Jesus' time, they, they were working their way around everything, disregarding prophecies, giving, uh, they were disregarding prophecies given seven centuries before it happened. Why? Because their hearts didn't want to believe. Jesus was upsetting the status quo. And that is overlooking the seriousness of the person of Jesus the Messiah. And this is what saddens me today. What we see on, on the internet, what we see on TV, the charlatans who, you know, paint a pretty picture and, and you see a lot of hype and a lot of things said about prosperity and, and uh, you know, God wanting to bless you and all, all of these things. Well, God blesses us, certainly. We're not saying he doesn't. The point of the matter is that things have gone out of hand. When you put away the word of God and you don't study it word for word, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, there's a problem. And so you have these problems of improper worship, improper focus. The focus is more on man now and man's feelings rather than honoring a holy God. We don't take serious the power of Almighty God. And we hesitate to want to listen to what others who are believers in Jesus Christ are suffering for the sake of Christ. There's a seriousness in these last days that we need to take hold of. But why were they not serious in Jesus' time? If Jesus is who he claims to be, that changes everything. So now, Jesus communicates his instruction. 
while the people were investigating, Jesus is communicating. There it is. Verse 28, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me and you know whence I am. And I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. So Jesus was either hearing their inquiries, or he discerned them, because Jesus can truly do that, because he knows the hearts and minds of men. And what Jesus does next is significant. He cries. He cries in the temple as he teaches. And again, we're, we're looking at verse 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple. The word cried here is the Greek word kratzo, K-R-A-Z-O, kratzo, which is a loud exclamation or scream. And so it's telling us that Jesus just wanted to be heard. He wanted to be heard. He said to them, you both know me, and you know whence I am. You know me, and you know where I'm from, or at least you think you do. I add that, and you'll see why in just a moment. You both know me, and you know whence I am. It is interesting that Jesus is shouting to be heard, and we say, you know, sometimes you really don't have to shout because we're not deaf. You ever heard that about some people that say, you know, some people, you know, when they're praying unto the Lord, they pray with a very loud voice, and they, they say, you know, God is not deaf. He can hear you. And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that sometimes from the depths of our heart when we are praying to God out of desperation, sometimes that's how we communicate. God's hear, God, God hears every prayer, even if it's a silent prayer, even if it's a prayer from the heart, God knows it and hears it. But it isn't for us to be telling people how to pray. Listen, uh, we know that there are various positions of prayer, right? We can pray on our knees, we can pray on our face, we can pray standing, we can pray sitting. And we don't tell people that, you know, one is better than the other. Each position really kind of is dictated by the, the, the need that we may have. Here Jesus is not praying so much as he wanting, he's wanting to be heard. He wants them to hear what he's saying. But I find it interesting in the scriptures that Jesus' loudest cry, a cry louder than this, Jesus' loudest cry in the scriptures wasn't here. It was to his Father in prayer. But you have to know where. And it was on the cross. Matthew 27. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. The word cried here is different than the word cried in John. Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The word for cried is not kratzo, but it is the word anaboao, an intensified shout for help. That was the loudest cry of Jesus. It was to his father. Just very quickly, let me interject that we need to understand that a person who never feels in prayer has never prayed with feeling. A person who never feels in prayer has never prayed with feeling. You know, there were times we were brought up, you know, well, you got to say your prayers and say them really fast and so you can get out of church real quick. <laughs> Just repeat this over and over and do it quick, do it quick. We used to have contests after confession. 
we could get out the door the fastest. <sighs> the words of Jesus on the cross were words that indicated a deep sense of feeling in Jesus. Ezra prayed in such a way when his people were intermarrying with the heathen nations. He, he tore his garment, he plucked his hair and his beard from his head and his face over the sin of his people. That's in Ezra 9, you can read that later. But when was the last time that we did that? When was the last time that we were so deeply moved by something that we tore our garments and we plucked out our hair? I, I just say this to give you the sense in which Jesus cried. The Jewish locals knew Jesus to a certain degree, but did they know what was sufficient to know? They knew him to a certain degree. They even said, well, we know him. He's from Nazareth, and you know, if, that, if he's from Nazareth, it disqualifies him. But did they know sufficiently? Did they know that he was not born in Nazareth? Did they know that he was born in Bethlehem according to the scriptures? Did they know these things? Jesus acknowledged that they knew him at least, he said, thinking, I mean, you think you know me. They knew where he was from, or at least they thought they did. But then he says, and I am not come of myself. Now that is really what changes everything here. I am not come of myself. I mean, this you don't, this you don't know. I am come, I am not come of myself. I am sent. And if sent, where do you think I'm from? If I'm sent, where do you think I come from? Because he that sent me is true, he says. He that sent me is faithful. There is no fault in him. Oh, by the way, you don't even know him. Now that was a tremendous indictment upon the Jewish religious leaders who boasted of knowing God. And he says, you don't even know him. And there he is standing in the temple of the Jewish people, his own people, who prided themselves in the knowledge of God. Why? Because they had Moses and the prophets. They had the heritage. They were the most blessed people on earth. And they would have been even more blessed if they had obeyed God. And God loved them so much that he wanted to bless them above and beyond. All that they could be blessed. Committed to them were the oracles of God, as, as Paul tells us in Romans 3, verse 2. But here Jesus is standing in the temple before the religious leaders and the people, and he says with a loud voice, You don't know God. Emphatically, you don't know God. Folks, this is what the popular and political society and culture of our day wants to eradicate. This is what they want to eradicate, this exclusivism. Now, bear with me. They want to eradicate this exclusivism, this just Jesus. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you, there's just Jesus. That's it. Why? Because, again, Jesus said of himself, I am the way, not a way, not the best way. I am the only way. I am the only truth. I am the only life. Who is the life giver? Jesus pointed that out already back in John chapter 5. Listen, you can be like Prince Charles of Great Britain. You know, at one time, the, the princes of Britain, they were the defenders of the faith, the Christian faith, as it were. You can argue that, but that, this, is what they, this is what they say of them. But today, do you know what Prince Charles is called? He's called the defender of the faiths, plural. Look it up. Well, because they've become tolerant. 
and because they've been overrun by Islam in, 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 in uh, England. So now if you're called the defender of the faiths, you're okay. But if you are a defender of the faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone, you will make enemies. You will make enemies. And please understand when I say this, but the Pope today is one who is trying to, is trying to push a, a, a one-world religion. He made, a, he made a video. You can see this. Yeah, I've been, you know, kind of coming down on people online, but hey, listen, you got to go online sometimes to find these things. But it's a legitimate video. It's a video that talks about bringing faiths together because, as it says on the video, we all believe in the same God. But we don't. We don't. There's only one God. One God in three persons. And the Son of God is God the Son, and His name is Jesus. And that's who we promote. That's who we preach. That's who we proclaim. Him and Him alone. Christian humanitarianism aside, because there are great, great groups of true Christian churches and, and organizations helping people. But there are a lot of others that don't see the same way and they kind of have kind of embraced this, this ecumenical movement and all. Who say unless we become more like the world, unless we become more ecumenical and brought together, we will not be tolerated. The double standard of a world demanding tolerance they're tolerant about those who will follow along with them, but when we stand for Christ, nobody's tolerant of us. Are we to be hand in hand with those who believe abominations are to be accepted in the church? As we are being pushed now to, be, to believe and to do, uh, back from uh, June, chapter, uh, June uh, of uh, 2015, when the Supreme Court decided, you know, uh, that it's the law of the land for there to be same-sex marriage? Are we to be hand-in-hand hand with those who believe salvation is by the church and not through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, not through the person and work of Christ? We can't be hand-in-hand. Hand. We can love them, but we, we, we just can't be hand-in-hand hand with them because we don't believe the same thing. I'll give you this passage very quickly here. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. There it is. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. I think that's a pretty clear statement. Don't be partakers with it. Now notice. For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, notice, and righteousness and truth. So that says, listen, there's goodness, righteousness, and truth. And the fact of the matter is the truth is the Word of God. And if the Word of God says that if something is not right, then don't do that. But then it says in verse 10, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Proving, in other words, testing what is acceptable to the Lord, which implies what? That there are things that are not acceptable to the Lord. Got it? So then you see in verse 11 it says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So if you study the Gospels, you find that Jesus wasn't inclusive. Now listen carefully to me, okay? Don't, don't let this pass over your head, just kind of flying by night here. If you study the Gospels, you find that Jesus wasn't inclusive. He was exclusive. He was exclusive. And again, I point you to John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's exclusive. The Bible is exclusive. There's only one way to God. When Jesus talked to Nicodemus by night, what did he tell him? Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That's exclusive. 
It's not inclusive. All right, every, everybody, we'll all, we'll all just, everybody come in. You fill a pool with everybody and then you, you, you don't swim. But folks, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you don't know God. You don't know God. And this is the Jesus people don't want today. This is the people that Jesus don't want. But this is the Jesus we've been given. And praise the Lord for that. The Jesus that was absolutely sold out to tell us the truth. And it is sad that people don't want to know this Jesus. Let's get back to our text in verse 29. Jesus told them without apology, you, do, you don't know God, but I do. You don't know God, but I do. Well, boy, that's, that's just not very loving, is it? For Jesus to say that. But he said it. He was always bringing his mission to the forefront. I am from him, and he has sent me. He was on a mission, but from where? He said the Father sent him. Time and again we've seen him say, the Father sent me. Sent from heaven? Yes. I have come to give salvation to them that believe. We've heard all those claims of knowing Jesus, but they had no clue. They had no clue that the Jesus that grew up in Nazareth was the one prophesied hundreds of years before. They had no clue. And whatever they believed of him wasn't sufficient. It wasn't even accurate. They should have asked the question to Jesus, why? Why is he telling us that we don't know God? He was stirring them to ask that question, but they didn't ask. They never asked the right question. And they needed to ask him more questions. As Nicodemus went to ask Jesus questions. But the little that they knew became a curse for them. That is the case for so many people today. They know just enough about Christianity to take them to hell because knowing about Christianity does not save you. And may I say to you that if you have a problem with what Christ says, then you have a problem with the person saying it, and then you have a problem with God. It's all connected. Jesus is the litmus test. He is the true litmus test. I want you to go back to John chapter 5 verse 23 for just a moment. For here it says that all men should honor the Son. Just, this is Jesus speaking. That all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Did the people want to honor the Father? Well, for the most part they did. You know, religiously they, they wanted to honor the Father. But if you don't honor him, in other words, if you don't honor him, Jesus, you don't honor the Father. Because Jesus said that all should honor the Son as they honor the Father. By the way, if you honor the Father, you should honor the Son. Because they're equal. And by the way, folks, this isn't pick and choose. Well, lastly, there was a conveying of interests here. A conveying of interests in verses 30 and 31. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. That was one interest. And many of the people believed on him and said, when Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The people were divided after their investigation. Here they are doing all this investigation and really not asking the right questions and all, but, but they were divided. This is what happens when we deal with Jesus. Isn't this what Jesus himself said in Matthew 10 verse 34, when he said, think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I came not to send peace, but a sword. I think we can understand it and consider it this way. That when Jesus comes into our lives and into our hearts, he does bring us peace. Because we've been at war all this time. We've been at war with him. And you know, when there's warfare, you know, there's a battle going on inside of us. The flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. And our spirits are dead before we come to Christ. So our, our battle is, you know, 
we were fighting it without even realizing we were fighting it. But once we came to Christ, because we came to the realization that we were sinners and Jesus set us free, what happened? Peace came to our hearts. But even in peace coming into our hearts, what happens to our families who don't understand? All of a sudden they think we're crazy. Any, anybody ever go through that? A lot of us did. All because we, we said, I, I love Jesus. Don't tell me you love Jesus. That's crazy talk. Just go to church. Well, isn't that why we go to church so we can love Jesus? <laughs> crazy talk. The world is divided concerning Jesus. He's, he is peace, but we're in warfare. And those are without, that are without Christ are in warfare. What he does good in dividing us is this. He divides us now. He splits us away from the things that kept us away from him. He wants us no longer to be connected to the world. He wants us to be connected to him. So that's a good thing in, in, that, in, in that particular respect. But getting back to our text, we can finish up. The enemies of Jesus sought to take him, but the hour was not yet come. Nevertheless, they planned, they plotted, they willed to take Jesus. But why did they not touch the Lord when they wanted to? Well, we could first of all say that he spoke boldly with impact. Because if they tried to take Jesus and the people who were listening to him really were, were, were grabbed by, you know, by the things he was saying. I mean, this attempt of taking him would have backfired because the people who were listening would have, would have rejected them, possibly. But secondly, and most importantly, the sovereign hand of Almighty God would not permit them to do what was contrary to the Lord's will, and it was not yet his hour. So it doesn't matter what man intends to do. Only one will is being exercised here, and that is God's will. That is why the relevance and the, and the, and the beauty of the message that Rich gave to us last week uh, about anti-Semitism and all is so rich in, in, in this particular case. That Jesus wasn't killed by the Jews, but all of us. Yet, he went to the cross willingly. See the, see the importance of that. So, so, so let's understand, only one will is being exercised here. So when we get to verse 31, it says those, those who seem to believe in him were, were looking at Jesus, and it says that some believe. But, but here's what you have to understand. Go all the way back to chapter 2. Some said they, they believed, yet he said, but he knew the hearts of them. So he didn't commit himself to them. So think about that in this case here too, because here they seem to believe in Jesus, but they're looking at Jesus logically. Remember all of the questions that they've been asking. And by the way, we're not saved by logic, are we? We're not saved by logic. If this isn't Messiah, what do we expect Messiah to do? Well, this has to be him. They're rationalizing. Uh, there has to be him. I mean, he did these miracles. So if the Messiah that, that's coming, you know, will he do greater miracles than this one? So this one must be him. See, so they're, they're, they're rationalizing this idea rather than just saying, let's believe him. And some will rationalize even to the point of saying, well, you know, now, okay, wait a minute. Now, if, if this is Messiah, if this is true, and I, and, and I believe him, then, you know, then, I, then I'm, I'm, I'm going to be saved, you know. But if, if this is, is not true, and I, and I don't believe, well, then um, I guess I don't lose anything, you know. That's a lot of mental gymnastics to go through to be saved here. Let's just consider that these were stony ground believers. You all know what I mean by stony ground believers? Remember the parable in Matthew 13 that Jesus spoke of, the, the parable of the sower and the seed? Who, you know, Jesus sowed the seed on, uh, on, on, the, on the wayside, and, which is the road, and there, you know, the seed didn't go in to be planted, and the birds would come and pluck it. And, and then, he's, then he sowed seed in the stony ground, and, and it, it rooted but just very little, you know. 
And, uh, but, uh, you know, the, the elements which would come and just kind of, you know, take, take it away. It had some life to it, but not very much. Well, well, let's go back just to Matthew for just a moment, because I think this is what we're dealing with here. And in Matthew, uh, there it is, 13 verse 20 and 21. This is now his explanation of the parable to his disciples. And he says, but he that receiveth the seed in stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy received it, anon means immediately, yet has he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. He endures for a while, he lives for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he's offended. Persecution comes and we run the other way. Stony ground believer. And that happens to too many who reason their way out of, out of belief, out of faith. Or they reason their way out of heaven. We can't reason our way to heaven. We can't reason our way to heaven. We must repent. For this is what the scripture says. We must repent and we must believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, who suffered and carried our sins upon the cross with him who shed his blood completely and totally out of his body, shedding his blood as the great sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who taketh away the sin of the world, who died on our behalf, who was buried, and on the third day rose again. May I give you just a very simple thing to carry with you? You don't even have to write it. You can memorize it right now. Are you ready? You ready? I'm a sinner. Let's say that. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Jesus is the remedy. Got it? All right. No, don't say got it. I mean, don't repeat that. I'm a sinner. God is holy. Jesus is the remedy. And he came to his own, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the sons of God, to as many as believe in his name. May I close with Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30? I figured we're in Matthew, we might as well stay there to close. And I, and I have to tell you this, last night I went about 10 minutes over, so you guys got the fast version. Matthew eleven twenty eight, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Take my yoke, that farm implement of wood that was placed upon two oxen, a larger oxen and a, a younger, immature oxen. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. The learn of me was Jesus would lead and we would be moved along with him. And he says, for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That just brings us to the cross of Jesus Christ. It brings us back to the cross. And I realize that from the liturgical sense, you know, the, the day was Palm Sunday, next week is what the world calls Easter Sunday, we call it Resurrection Sunday. 
But today is Resurrection Sunday. Every day. You know, tomorrow's Resurrection Monday. And then Tuesday's Resurrection Tuesday. And for 366 days of this year, every day is a day we celebrate Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death on our behalf by rising from the dead. Amen? Amen.